0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel by Dominique Ede. In this personal portrait of Edward Said written by a close friend, Dominique Edet offers a fascinating and fresh presentation of his work, from his earliest writings on Joseph Conrad to his most famous texts, Orientalism and Culture and Imperialism. Edet weaves together accounts of the genesis and content of Said's work his intellectual development, and her own reflections and personal recollections of their friendship, which began in 1979 and lasted until Saeed's death in 2003. Throughout, she traces the connection between personal history and theoretical options, illuminating the evolution of Saeed's thought. Both specialists of Saeed's work and newcomers' will find much to learn in this rich portrait of one of the 20th century's most important intellectuals. Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel by Dominique Edet, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I somehow didn't hear much about the Communist Party as part of my elementary school Black History Month curriculum. But as political scientist Michael Dawson, my guest today, makes clear, Black radicalism is at the core of Black history, and radical history is incomplete without the stories of the black people who joined both multiracial socialist organizations and independent nationalist ones to fight for their liberation the decline of the left and the rise of neoliberalism in american politics as a whole in turn are impossible to understand without taking stock of the black elites turn to neoliberalism And none of this makes any sense without a careful appraisal of how an always thoroughly racialized political economy has shaped the entirety of U.S. history since its inception. Before we get rolling, I'm pausing to ask for your support at patreon.com slash the dig. I started this podcast nearly three years ago, just after the 2016 elections, in the hope of providing the activists building this new, new left with analysis that would prove helpful in the fight to defeat the far right and the extreme center and build a better world in their place. We have been able to do that and to provide all of our episodes for free with no paywalls because those of you who can support us do so. What's more, we have left-wing books to send you, including Mistaken Identity, Racing class in the age of Trump by Assad hater as a token of our gratitude if you donate ten dollars a month or more so if you've been thinking about donating for a while and haven't done so yet please take a moment that's p a t r e o n dot com slash the dig thank you and Here's Michael C. Dawson, a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and founding director of the university's Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. He's the author of many books, including Not in Our Lifetimes, The Future of Black Politics, and Blacks in and Out of the Left. Recently, with Megan Ming-Francis, Dawson has launched a nationwide multi-university project to study the intersection of race and capitalism. Today, we are discussing Blacks in and out of the left and an article that he co-authored with Megan Ming Francis entitled, Black Politics and the Neoliberal Racial Order, published in the journal Public Culture. Michael Dawson, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thanks for having me. It's fun to be here.
0: Where do Black radicals fit into conventional histories of the U.S. left? And what does putting Black politics at the center of that history reveal that is otherwise obscured?
1: I think um, there's multiple ways to answer that question, of course. And I'll try not to be too much of an academic. But first, I would say that Black Radicals aren't very much at the center of most histories, or in fact, are to some degrees uh, significantly invisible. So, in one sense, there are some spectacular aspects to Black radicalism that you are usually included in left histories. I'm thinking most particularly of the coverage, for example, in a standard history of the Black Panther Party uh, for self-defense that was extremely active and influential, not just in the Black movement but in, in the radical movement, the Chicano movement, and indigenous movements um, in the anti-war movement, even though the Panthers might be covered, the complexities of the panzer party usually are not. The fact, for example, that the ideologies that the Panthers followed um, varied from city to city to a type of almost cultural nationalism in some cases to a fairly orthodox Marxism in other cases. Um, but what yeah, I think is even more missed is that the Panthers were by no means the only major black radical organization of the time. So the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, for example, that started in the Detroit area. Um, the many collectives that uh, popped up in California, the work that was being done in factories and, and the Black Student Union movement. Those, that's what is usually missing. So, for example, when you think about the anti-war movement, uh, we think about it as a predominantly white Mass movement, which captures half of the pro, half of the terrain, but it does not capture, for example, the massive Chicano mobilization in Los Angeles that led to the August twenty ninth um, movement or August twenty eighth movement. Excuse me, and what's also not picked up. For example, is that. Even during the civil rights movement, um, as early as the middle 1960s at the March of Washington, we started seeing black civil rights leaders come out against the war. Of course, King famously came out against the war and lost a lot of his support among um, liberal Americans when he did so, saying, um, much as NBA players are told today, just worry about basketball <laughs> <laughs> and not politics. Uh, don't worry about foreign policy. That's outside your lane. So. The history of black radicalism is, I think, to some degree central, not just to the understanding of the left, but the understanding of support for socialism. Um, If you look at the history of the Communist Party in the United States, for example, much of its strongest support was in black communities in places like New York, Chicago, Detroit, etc. So we miss a substantial amount, not just of the movement history by leaving out the history of black radicalism and its complexities. But we also leave leave out some of the strongest bases for support for potential left movement, either in the past or today.
0: Stepping back, I'd like to start by talking more about that early 20th century black radical political milieu that you just referred to, and and its leftist, liberal, and nationalist currents. It involved groups including the Socialist Party, the African Blood Brotherhood, which was ultimately absorbed into the Communist Party, the NAACP, Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Explain how various factors, politics, economics, the Great Migration, massive nationwide violence, how that all shaped black politics in general and black radicalism in particular during this period.
1: So I think we have, as you suggest, several factors that we have to take into account. One in let's start with the Great Migration where we see as a result of the violence in Jim Crow and the widening of economic opportunities for African Americans in the North, combined with the increasing involvement of white male workers in World War One, we see a massive shift of the black populations first to the East and Midwestern cities and then later, about 20 years later, at the time of World War II, to the West as well. So what we see is that. massive shift of blacks becoming urbanized, moving into neighborhoods and into cities where they've been relatively small parts, although ongoing parts of the population, and joining, particularly with respect to black men, uh, industrial workforce, and with black women, um, domestic workforce uh, primarily. So that's sort of the terrain we're looking at. But what we're also looking at is a terrain where in the Socialist Party in particular, We see socialist parties, workers, and I talk about this in my book, Black Sin and All the Left, time and time again talk about this is a party for white people. Or that the more liberal, um, to use the word somewhat pejoratively in this context, socialist party leaders saying that we're not particularly concerned with the concerns of African-Americans, even if we're not particularly racist, they're they're of secondary concern to the concerns of the working class. So you had African-Americans such as Hubert Harrison, others with socialists leaning, such as the great labor leader A. Philip Randolph, being attracted to the Socialist Party, but also finding that their attempts to build a black movement within black communities was at best ignored and often met with hostility. Out of this clash of violence that took place, that was ongoing, but really reached a massive amount of violence in the summer of 1919, We also see a reaction in black communities generally of saying we're going to stand up and defend ourselves and build and we need to be politically active as well as economically and socially independent. So out of that combination of hostility on the part of the organized white left, massive violence coming from white civil society. Massive transformation to becoming a, a part of a urban working class and urban population more generally, we see African Americans take several political moves, and the two major, the three major strands of African American political organizing at this point, are a social democratic tendency um, at the time represented by Du Bois and others, um, manifested in NAACP, manifested in the labor organizing such as that done by A. Philip Randolph and um, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. We see a the largest tendency and the most successful organization, not in terms of what they gained, but in terms of mobilizing African Americans, was the Universal Negro Improvement Association of Marcus Garvey, which was a black nationalist organization, a pan-African organization, which called on people of African descent to to unify politically, culturally, and socially throughout the world and to separate themselves. And then the third tendency is a black left. Um, And a black left that, um, whether it's Hubert Harrison or the people like um, Harry Haywood, who becomes one of the members of Cyril Briggs, who become part of the African Blood Brotherhood, a black left that sees self-determination as an important aspect of black liberation, but also sees uh, African Americans being truly connected to the worldwide struggle against capital as well, Um, and are trying to struggle with the twin task of uniting with other progressive forces, other working class forces, both organizationally and in communities, but also trying to build a black movement that is to some degree autonomous and able to um, fight on behalf of African Americans. Of those tendencies, in the early part of the 20th century, what we see is a lot of the black left forces eventually joining the Communist Party of the United States. Um, The African Blood Brotherhood, as you already mentioned, pretty much gets subsumed by the CPUSA. Haywood and his brother both go into the CP. um, A number of of black immigrants from the Caribbean uh, become leading members, uh, like Claudia Jones, uh, among others, become leading members of the CPUSA. And the CPUSA becomes quite active in black communities in northern urban areas. Part of the there was some attraction, even Haywood talks about this in his book, Black Bolshevik, even on the black left, there was an attraction to the Garvey movement. Um, the ideal of blacks being proud, organized, self-sufficient, mobilized and militant was one that was very popular and that would echo throughout the 20th century in organizations like the Nation of Islam, or for that matter through, through leaders such as Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party. But ultimately, both the radical support for separatism in the, in the Garvey movement combined with a fairly radical support for capitalism and then an alliance with, for example, the Ku Klux Klan because Garvey agreed that we should have separate, we should be separate, there should not be miscegenation, there should be organizationally, politically, and culturally complete separation, to a that and attack of the state led to... Uh, the at least within the US the falling apart of what had been the most organized and largest black urban organization in the in the first half of the 20th century
0: you write that that white supremacists often described civil rights as a communist ploy and that they did so not without some reason many whites who supported civil rights were indeed communists and as you were just mentioning many leading black radicals became communists too and the CP had a huge base of support in working-class Black neighborhoods like Chicago's South Side, a place where in the early 30s, 5,000 people could be mobilized in less than 30 minutes to fight an eviction. The The CP also mobilized a lot of respect for leading the defense to save the Scottsboro boys who faced execution after being falsely accused of raping two white women in Alabama. But then you write that the CP that their white leadership was worried about being seen as as too black and often sought to marginalize black activism. Explain this contradictory dynamic, how on the one hand the CP often excelled at mobilizing black support and being at the the forefront of the struggle against racism, but then also on the other hand how the party ultimately squandered that support by de-emphasizing and marginalizing black struggle.
1: It's a long, it's a long, and complicated, and in my opinion, tragic history. There's always a suspicion among the top leadership of the CPUSA toward blacks organizing as blacks within the Communist Party, or even for that matter, black cadre organizing black people in black communities along the lines of what they saw as race. They saw that as a dangerous nationalist tendency. Often, to go a little bit into esoteric Communist history. Analogies made to the Bund movement in the Russian Social Democratic Party be- um, that existed before the October Revolution, where Jewish communists sometimes organized along religious lines within the party, and that was severely criticized both within the Russian party and within the communist movement internationally. And there was, I think, people. It's hard for people to to totally transcend. Uh, the social media and the, their their the um, way they were brought up, so there's also not a as Robin Kelly shows in his magnificent book Hammer and Ho, not a small amount of just outright racism <laughs> among white cadre um, in the c p u s a blacks in the in the Communist Party still saw it as the best organizational avenue for fighting both against uh, racial. Oppression and for against um, class domination um, by capital, which was ravaging uh, black communities at the time. And so often what they did was look for allies like in, in the Comintern, in other words, international communist allies that could put pressure on the US leadership, which did happen around, for example, the, the articles on self determination that were passed in the, early ni- in the early history of the Communist Party of the United States.
0: And this has to do with the, the black nation.
1: Yes, the the Black national sees it that, and, and there was a lot of controversy even among Black cod, cadre within the CPUSA, like between Haywood and his brother Otto Briggs, for example, about whether there was a Black nation. But what Black activists thought was that the Black struggle itself was revolutionary in its in its own right, and within the framework of communist doctrine at the time, by declaring African Americans as a nation, they would have the right to self determination, the right to independently organize. African-American communities, and that would be seen as a revolutionary task. There were always some frictions. For example, to the degree that African-Americans have always been a highly Christian community, the the doctrinal atheism of the Communist Party was something that could be a friction if it wasn't emphasized, if it it became too emphasized. Other frictions included sometimes, um, St. Clair Drake, one of my first uh, mentors, used to talk about how there were... Trying to import Russian cultural forms into the south side of Chicago was probably not the most, most <laughs> astute move.
0: But this is a consistent <laughs> yeah. problem throughout uh, U.S. left history that you that you identify as well.
1: <laughs> I know of some organizations that I may have been partly um, allied with at different times in the ancient distant past, <laughs> in the Jurassic period <laughs> of my life, that may have lean a little bit too much on Chinese cultural forms for some reason that I won't go into. (laughs) Uh, But yes, it's a consistent... uh, It's it's an area that I talk about in in Blacks and Now the Left uh, reliance on not just trying to bring analysis that might have been developed, for example, for revolutionary war in a peasant society into the United States, which seems relatively insane, but also uh, importing at the same time cultural forms that have absolutely no resonance with what's going on in the communities here. Other frictions, though, um, I think also developed besides the sort of inter... There's always, for example, a tension, and we see this in the left today. How do you deal with racism within the left? Um, and the parties sort of went back and forth. Sometimes they would have public trials of, like, white immigrant members of the party who had made some racial faux pas. There's also, I think, pressures in the party, I'm talking to some older members of the party, for forced integration. Um, So it wasn't just that people should be free to associate with whom they want to outside of party business, but it was like there was often pressure put on by the party to force integration, um, which is probably almost never a good idea. So the sort of interracial dynamics within the party was always a a source of friction. But I think things really started to break down, for example, during the United Front period. First, um, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the party when it refused to do anything major around the invasion of Ethiopia um, by fascist Italy. People were saying, why aren't we taking up this struggle like we took up the anti-fascist struggle against Franco in Spain? There were, of course, increasing questions about Stalin and the show trials in the Soviet Union and what actually the party uh, represented, the Russian party represented, And there was, later by the mid-century, the the party's lack of foresight or just any type of attentiveness to what was going on in black communities, not seeing the black struggle for civil rights and later for black power as being central, in fact, being perhaps in some ways a reactionary movement. By that point, the Communist Party had squandered most of its mass support within black communities.
0: You argue that a critical sundering or, or break took place between 1946 and 1955 that, quote, saw Black leftists become marginalized within the CPUSA, the labor movement, and Black politics. And they were also marginalized, you write, from international anti-colonial struggles. You note, for example, the absence of Black—U.S. Black radicals at the 1955 Bandung Conference in Indonesia— you write, quote, by 1955, black radicalism had been brutally and efficiently sundered from all of the movements with which it had been entangled domestically and internationally. The result was that, quote, many different potential democratic futures became unrealizable and just as important, unimaginable as black radicalism became isolated. What, what happened during this period? and why do you argue that this was so enormously consequential not only for the left and for the black left and for black politics, but, but for American politics as a whole?
1: The, the sundering of African-American radicalism from the international movement was quite a conscious and efficient policy of the U.S. state. So the prosecution of radicals, uh, whether it was Du Bois, or others, their stripping of their passports was one aspect of that. The expulsion um, and deportation of other black radicals from the Caribbean, such as Claudia Jones, who, who we have already mentioned, was another aspect. The result was that African-Americans were were fighting for their freedom and their livelihoods inside the United States because of massive attacks by the state and forbidden to travel internationally. So that's one of the reasons that there is such a separation. The other thing that happened within the NAACP, within the labor movement, was a purge of black radicals from these organizations, from civil rights organizations. So where African-American radicals have been openly and Consistently participating in these forums, as a result, of, led
0: by the led by the likes of Walter White and Roy Wilkins.
1: As that, well, Walter White, Roy Wilkins, um, A. Philip Randolph was was involved in this as well. In, a, in an effort to avoid the worst of the risk, ear themselves of the persecution of the McCarthy era, they turned on black radicalism. We've seen this time and time again. What, of course, is ironic about this is that that didn't work. The state, once the black left was purged, then they turned on people like Randolph as well. So what we see is a stripping of black political organizations, black uh, civic organizations, black labor organizations and the labor movement itself and other progressive forces of what have been some of the most active, imaginative and internationally connected um, leaders within the United States. What this also meant was that where you had a fairly strong, or at least developing, relationship between labor and radical black movements, let's say in the thirties, um, that becomes separated as well. So, what we by the nineteen sixties, what we find, for example, is a labor movement fighting black radicalism, not just in black communities, but within its own ranks in places in places like Detroit or or in some of the steel cities as well. Um, it also meant that the civil rights movement while there were people who were had been identified with the black left who were silent advisors, of people like King, they weren't playing an active role. And one of the, I think, consequences that is perhaps underplayed is by the time that black radicalism surges to the forefront once again by the middle to late 60s. There are some informal ties between the earlier generation of, of black radicalism and the new generation, but they're relatively informal, weak, and scattered. So there's a lot of reinventing the wheel that happens in the middle 1960s, middle nineteen, and the early 1970s.
0: On the labor front, it's a similar trajectory to what happened with the, the, the left as a whole, vis-a-vis the, the, the CIO. Is that right?
1: That's correct. And it also happened within the Communist Party. Um, my um, late partner was an uh, activist um, from Hawaii. And One of the reasons she was relatively, in her youth, hostile toward the Communist Party was the Communist Party um, had purged its Hawaiian branch for being too radical, (laughs) again, during the 1950s, as as a vain attempt to shield itself from the ravages of um, the anti-Communist purges and persecutions that were going on. It was
0: like trickle-down McCarthyism.
1: It was trickle-down McCarthyism, a very good way to put it. But we've seen this—this is not just a phenomenon we've seen in the U.S. We've seen Social Democrats turn on the left and then get wiped out themselves in Germany uh, during during Weimar and other places as well.
0: One key result of this sundering, as you mentioned, was this, quote, separation between the Black and labor movements, which contributed in turn to more nationalist-inflected versions of Black radicalism. A shift from the, quote, language of working-class struggle— and the struggle for racial equality to the language of national liberation and anti-colonial struggles. You argue that this break was facilitated by a post-war mid-century rapprochement between capital and white labor, which in turn was made possible by the super exploitation of others, both domestically and internationally. Explain your argument. How, how did the post-war political economy shape the racialized organization of labor and labor politics? And how did that in turn shape black politics and all politics in the long run?
1: So I think there's two aspects to this. One, I've actually worked on part of this quite a bit since the book came out, which is, I think, a growing consensus among uh, progressive scholars about the fact that a lot of what we see as social democracy in the West, whether it's in North America or Europe, was founded on colonialism and the ability to expropriate raw materials, labor, bodies, land from the global south and super-exploit racially subordinate populations within countries such as the United States. The way that gets manifested in the United States in the post World War II era is very simple. As one one of the decisions that the labor movement, much like the NAACP, made, was that in order to protect ourselves from the state and from the from the growing anti-communism um, that was a mark of the of the advent of the Cold War, is that we're purging anything that looks even mildly left from our ranks. And of course, since African Americans were a central part of the left, um, that meant thundering a lot of black Uh, radical union members. The second thing that happens is that the labor movement and other scholars have done a much better job than I have of documenting this, becomes quite allied with aspects of the Cold War, of fighting the Cold War on the side of the U.S., whether it's union delegations to parts of the world or cooperating with the State Department. The labor movement actually becomes part of that institutional apparatus that the U.S. feels in cultural labor and civil society throughout the world. And finally, I think what we see, excuse me, both in American politics in cities like Chicago, but also in places like Detroit and nationally, is a decision by white political and labor, liberal political and labor leaders. Um, This is very starkly uh, shown in, in Chicago with the Daily Administration about whether they're going to remain advocates for racial equality or to cave to the worst aspects of the racist tendencies found in some sectors of the white working class and middle classes. And in cities like Chicago, in cities like Detroit, we see that, in fact, happening. With uh, result that black politics be- becomes seen as the enemy and in many cases, black politicians are seen as enemy. This would eventually lead to Chicago to the election of the Harold Washington. but again, it then forces black politics into a more nationalist mode, not in the sense of necessarily being ideologically nationalist, but in terms of s- believing that only if we organize along racial lines in black communities will be able to advance demands of those communities because others will not do it. We see this quite actively in the labor movement. And Actually, I was a part of this, although I don't want to say it because it sort of ages me. <laughs> but that's one reason we have black caucuses and unions in the, in the 70s on a massive scale is because questions of racial equality would not be taken up by the union movement even on such basic questions of shop floor democracy and anti-racism. So whether it's in college campuses, shop floors, or communities, we see blacks feeling the need to organize among themselves and Chicanos and Puerto Ricans and other uh, people of color, saying we have to organize among ourselves or just demands will not be advanced.
0: You write that this mid-century moment, this this sundering is critical to understanding the black power movement that follows. And you write that on the positive side, the black power movement was, was powerful It was more independent than its black radical predecessors, and it had deep ties to the black grassroots. But then on the negative side, you write that it lacked the context of a a unified or broad left, lacked a deep connection to the labor movement, and also that it was doctrinally Maoist. And what's more, and you mentioned this earlier, that, that this break meant a lack of intergenerational continuity between early and later 20th century black radicals, which which was also true across the left as a whole, is something I discussed with Max Elbaum in, in an earlier interview. Can you provide a, a general overview of the black power movement, how it was shaped by its past and the the, the, the very different directions that a, a an in reality rather heterogeneous movement took?
1: The communities in many ways, I think, were responding to some of the same forces that the earlier generation of black radicals were responding to in the summer of 1919 and early 1920s, which were increasing frictions within urban areas, uh, whether it was in places that have seen recent surges of black population like Los Angeles, or have been had for not at this point a generation or two large black populations like Detroit, uh, frictions between interracial frictions within cities, increasing frictions with police forces throughout urban America that unfortunately remains with us to this day, as well as uh, probably an under, uh, under understudied aspect of this phenomenon was a beginning of really a shift in American political economy away from manufacturing, uh, away from the type of jobs that could to some degree guarantee a decent life for a family. And black communities were the first to see, for example, a sharp decline in labor participation rates, a rise in unemployment. And we're beginning to see the first to feel the effects of the shift in the American political economy toward a more service economy. As manufacturing got outsourced first to the upper south and then um, entirely outside the the U.S. Those are sort of, again, the terrain that black radicals and black communities were facing and at this point, there was not a communist party that was even partially open to taking up questions of civil rights um, and black liberation. So the type of organizations that emerged, I think, fell into three or four categories. Uh, by far, the largest tendency was black social democratic tendency represented by the civil rights movement, represented by organizations like SNCC, um, SCLC, Urban League, Corps, et etc., the problem with those communities, with those organizations, and that movement was, they started facing contradictions in the mid 1960s. First, as the Democratic Party seemed to turn their back on those organizations, um, and famously at the Democratic Convention. Also, as increasing resistance in 1964, resist- exactly, increasing resistance within white communities. Um, first seen by, although he lost spectacularly, Barry Goldwater laid the foundations for what would become the Nixon and Reagan type of mobilization of racial resentment in white communities, uh, be, uh, building electoral majorities in many states and le- and within the electoral college, and the beginnings of an imperialist war that would devastate many black communities as African Americans were in a position to be drafted in surplus numbers and then sent to fight in, in Indochina. The response so what happened in the civil rights organizations was, do we keep with a civil rights message? Do we take on the imperial war as those such as John Lewis and Martin Luther King wished to do? Uh, do we, how do we deal with increasing violence in places like Mississippi, which, which is what the SNCC cadre faced um, after the summer of 1965? How do we resp- respond to the international Aggression of the United States and the growing resistance to civil rights and racial equality. And that's sort of where we see the real flowering of the Black Power movement, because the, an- the answers f- fell into two categories, or three categories, depending on how you count. One was a real turn among many, including former members of the Civil Rights Organization, to black nationalism. I was't alone one of my, one, my, my roommate and still a friend, uh, joined the Nation of Islam. Um, others, there was other black nationalist organizations that, um, whether it was Pan African Peoples Congress, on the uh, I mean, Pan African Peoples Party, among others, um, the Congress for African Peoples. In the Northeast, we see a flowering of black nationalist organizations that are ideologically nationalist. What I mean by that, saying that race is the fundamental contradiction, the fundamental problem in the world and we are organizing for, for black people and only for black people. The second tendency was a, this was one that we've seen in the early 20th century, one that combined nationalist organizing in the sense of being black organizations, but often with a socialist bent. And there's a lot of the most famous organizations from this period fall into this category. The Black Panther Party, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, African People's Socialist Party, So internally, they often acted as a socialist organization would, but often took the language of national liberation, self-determination as being central to the mission. And often were quite skeptical of white workers for good reasons as being allies and looked to both people of color within the United States as potential allies, as well as international forces, anti-colonial forces in particular. And out of that movement, out of both movements, actually, we see emerging a new communist movement that has Black, Latinx, and Asian leadership that comes out of these community struggles um, that, and I think this is partly due to the generational gap, but also for other reasons as well, uh, is much more Maoist and less oriented toward uh, the Soviet Union and the CPUSA.
0: Identity politics in general and Black power in particular, have been blamed for the decline of the left, but by people like Todd Gitlin and, and Richard Rorty, and s- similar sorts of arguments continue to take place pretty frequently today. But you argue that these critics are wrong on two levels. One, you write that their argument gets Black Power wrong by by caricaturing this diverse array of, of very different groups as homogenous, and 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 two. You write that it's wrong in its presumption that there was any sort of pre-Black power universality that existed that Black power could have fragmented. You argue that instead that supposed universality was in fact a white particularity that was unmarked and thus presumed to be universal. Explain these assessments of the decline of the left and your response to them.
1: So I think the first one is in some ways the easiest Many of the organizations that I write about uh, that were part of the Black Power Movement were not primarily concerned about recognition and were primarily concerned about the path. They were very materialist in, ori- in orientation. They were worried about the forms of oppression that African Americans were having to face in their communities and their workplaces. Unfortunately, uh, one of the weaknesses of these organizations uh, that by and large um, until the emergence of the black feminist movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s, they were extraordinarily bad on questions of gender equality and and homophobia. But they were very concerned about questions of imperialism, very concerned about questions of the, de- the depredations of capital in black communities, the depredations of black workers, at least black male workers, And they were concerned about the type of racial oppression that were quotidian aspects of of life in in black communities. So in that sense, they were not about either nostalgia about some type of African past that never existed, nor primarily concerned about recognition. They were concerned about material resources and improving the lives and the ability of people in those communities to flourish. The second part of it is that I do believe that there's a presumption of normativity associated with whiteness in the left, um, not just in the U.S., but that's what we're talking about, where the particularity of the demands that are primarily those associated with, with the white working class trump those that, of whether it's black workers or woman workers or other forms of oppression that are associated with logics of patriarchy or white supremacy, as being, those are the ones that are labeled particular, and um, the ones that are flow out of the concerns of predominantly white Americans are the ones that are marked as universal. There was one just historically never a time where these type of racial tensions did not exist within um, American, within the American left, and the American the American society more generally. Secondly, we have been very hesitant to recognize that there are. The wages of whiteness aren't just a psychic wage, as Du Bois and others have talked about. It's partly that, but it's also whether it's a questions of gender and gender equality or questions of a white privilege, there are real material benefits to being white and male. And there are real interests at stake in protecting those privileges. It's not that those privileges necessarily trump those of, let's say, working class unity across races, but if we don't recognize those privileges and don't confront them directly, there's no way to build a unified, progressive movement. The language that my colleagues and I have developed over the last couple of years, and this is a work in progress, so you can quote me, but if I change my mind a <laughs> few years from now, <laughs> I'll, I'll have you back on to restate me. it, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that there are multiple systems of domination, the ones that we pay most attention to our patriarchy, the domination of a capitalist social order, and that of white supremacy. And while they're articulated very tightly with each other in, in a particular historical context, they also have semi-autonomous logics of their own. And there are both material and other types of benefits of, uh, associated with being male, with being white, with being a member of the ruling class. Um, and we have to understand the oppressions and types of domination that come out all three sets of, of all three sets of logics.
0: Would you say that that's similar to Nancy Fraser's analysis, or do you see these various systems of domination as somewhat more disarticulated than she would?
1: I I haven't talked to Nancy about this in about a year, so I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I mean, Nancy focuses on what she calls are the three E's, right? Exploitation, which is ex- associated with the classes, um, domination of a capitalist social order of the working class, expropriation, which um, in some of her relatively recent writing is associated with white supremacy and other forms of extraction of resources, privilege in the name of white supremacy and a system of domination and expansion, which is the imperial, which is the imperial side. So we, I mean, when I say we, I'm talking about me and my colleagues and some of my co-authors, See a fairly tight articulation between the between the systems, but also realize that those that they can cause frictions between each other as well. So, for example, I was arguing um, with Nancy, I think around two thousand fifteen or sixteen, probably two thousand sixteen, that we had entered a. A legitimacy crisis, at least with respect to white uh, whites within the U.S., who no longer were increasingly seeing the system as not being legitimate. This was before the election of Donald Trump. Um, I think she's come to; she might argue about the language of the legitimacy crisis, but she does. She did say when we talked last year that, in fact, there is a crisis of that sort, where because of what is seen quite falsely as the decline in white privilege and male privilege. The state is seen as less legitimate by wide sectors of um, the white community, and this is in part what led to Donald Trump's electoral success. Um, making America great again means going back to putting people back in the closet, putting people back in the kitchen, um, putting people back in their place. Those are the type of frictions that can lead to extraordinary authoritarian rule and oppressions, but it can also lead to. Um, the type of progressive movements that we've seen develop and perhaps have the potential to flourish in the, in the, in the, in the future.
0: You write, quote, Black progress has always been greatest when there is was, was an organized, independent Black political movement. And you argue that what this should ideally look like is a third path beyond nationalism, on the one hand, and multiracial organizations, on the other, to, quote, Fight for human emancipation from within black radical organizations, deeply embedded within black communities and movements. Explain your argument and how you think black independent groups should relate to both multiracial left organizations and to broader multiracial left alliances and, and what role should be played by each.
1: So I believe very strongly that there's a role for both multiracial left organizations and independent black organizations as well. I think we're not past the point where both are needed. The former I think is needed is that there, there are progressive parts of the black community who are not going to be comfortable with multiracial organi- organizing, with multiracial organizations that are st- still see a primary need for organizing for progressive um, causes within black communities. I think we see much of the contemporary black youth organizing that has been extremely progressive has taken this form. It's also clearly the case, in my view, that Multiracial organizations are needed in order to bring together progressive forces across the country within, and be able to coordinate and unify. We've seen those types of organizations be able to work together side by side. In some cases, individuals, we belong to both types of organizations simultaneously. So I don't see it as a particularly normative or moral question about w- which one's better. I think we need both right now, and I think we need both well into the future.
0: Another question about organization, you argue that misogyny and sexism, and you touched on this earlier, were a huge problem in the black power movement and that the black feminism that arose partly in response to that provides some critical lessons. You write, quote, we must move from the patriarchal and anti-democratic leadership of past black radical organizations and adopt styles and principles of leadership from the black feminist wing Of Black radicalism. You were writing this in around 2009, 2010, I think. And remarkably, since then, the largest, most powerful black movement that emerged after you wrote that, the movement for black lives, was very much shaped by just those leadership principles. Can you say a bit about that initial period, what sort of critique black feminists were making and and what you make of its long-term influence?
1: Sadly, once again, the critique that was being made in, let's say, 1974, 1973, actually earlier, just what hadn't been written up at the time, is still germane. We, we see critiques like this going back, for example, to the work of Ida B. Wells at the turn of the 20th century, which is that black women activists and also other women of color faced fairly strong, not fairly strong, very strong, Um, sexism within the black movement and racism within, and to some degree classism um, within what they viewed as a predominantly white-led women's movement. Um, And we see some of the same dynamics today. So they wanted to argue that you have to deal, and once again, with any type of black movement, not just black movements. The black feminist movement is not homogenous. There's a more nationalist wing. There's a more socialist wing. But the common thread was a strong commitment to dealing with, simultaneously, with, with racism, sexism, and depending on the feminist, um, also homophobia and classism. There, again, there's um, heterogeneity within that movement as well. And that the issues that black women faced could not be put to aside. So one example is um, at a time in the 1970s when the Detroit Revolution Union Movement was organizing Detroit, some women workers on the shop floor, I don't remember what plan it was anymore, but one of the auto factories came to the leadership and said, uh, we're talking about sexual harassment they were facing, and they were saying, those are not type of issues um, that are critical to black workers. There were black women workers on the shop floor that had to deal with this every day, but it w- those issues were not seen as Issues of the working, of the well, the black working class. In this case, those are the type of issues that they say could not be put to the side, and that they would, their supporters and allies would have to fight on a continual basis. And one thing that I think you, you forgot to mention is it wasn't just the black power movement. The civil rights movement was equally was equally sexist as well, as Ella, <laughs> <laughs> Ella Baker and Certainly. others have pointed out. <laughs> out. But one of the things that come that, that I see as a unifying, and not just me, I mean, but one of the unifying themes of how patriarchy gets manifested in both the civil rights and black power movements and black politics more generally is a sort of focus on a male leader or a leader, period. So one of the things that I was thinking about and others were talking about um, that came out of black feminist theorizing was a need for a more communal, collective, democratic leadership. Ella Baker talked about this many years ago. And that's what we're seeing emerge out of the Movement for Black Wild Lives, um, BYP 100, Asada Sisters, and many other organizations that are doing work in these communities today.
0: It's remarkable, given this historical trajectory that, that you're laying out, that today's movement is so often led by queer black women?
1: I think what's true in most, I don't know about most, but many organizations in black and other communities that these organizations have always been led by women. And we may, they may or may not have been queer um, at the time. Often people did not feel confident for good reason. And revealing their sexuality, but even when they were led by women, the women didn't get credit for the leadership. And we see this in the civil rights movement. Um, If you look at uh, who was doing the work in the Black Panther Party, obviously there are important black men that were doing work, but black women were absolutely critical and central to the Black Panther Party and virtually any other organization you want to name. Again, this is not a black phenomenon. This is is the case I know. Certainly. (laughs) But this is true of organizations um, um, more generally. What I think is different about this period is people are not going to say, you're going to have to take me as who I am. I'm not going to be put to the side, and you're going to have to recognize um, and cooperate with the type of leadership I can provide.
0: Another critical lesson you draw from the history is that in both the Communist Party and Black Power eras, the that left-wing Black organizations were strongest when they were most directly oriented towards direct organizing work in neighborhoods and workplaces, impacting everyday black people's lives. And you write that both the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and the Black Panthers split in part over related questions. What is in your view the the ideal healthy relationship between a left-wing organization and its mass base? And how ultimately did certain decisions, decisions like the New Communist Movement's turn to party building or the the a faction of the Black Panthers push to go underground as the Black Liberation Army, how did decisions like that undermine that balance?
1: what i don't know if I was as clear on when I wrote the passage you were talking about, although I think I was moving that direction, but which is part of both the turn toward party building and the new communist movement, the turn toward becoming an armed faction uh within in terms of the Black Liberation Army when the panthers split, is the ideal of a vanguard or elite group that's over and above the people. Uh, I think is a very dangerous move. Right. Um, I think it's dangerous when it assumes state power, and that's, your, that's, and that's the view that you see of yourself. Uh, I think you have to be of the people, not above the people. Um, and that is a lesson that I think we, that the left um, and Democratic forces in general have to relearn time and time again. The practical consequences um, when the new communist movement turned toward party building and and concentrating on theory, which was part of the party building move, was people were pulled out of theatrical organizations in places like San Jose and San Francisco and L.A. People were pulled out of factories uh, across the United States. People were pulled out of, they weren't pulled out of school, but they were no longer organizing among students. Um, They were no longer doing the type of community organizing, day-to-day organizing um, the Black Panther Party, um, the faction that became the B.L.A., were no longer doing the free breakfast programs or the school programs or the or the clinics. So, if you're not part of the people, one, you can't learn from people if you're not part if you're not with them, and two, people don't see what a possible alternative that you offer can be. So, besides the obvious risk of becoming isolated and much more vulnerable to state power, is also has equally serious consequences that can lead and always and so far has led to the demise of movements.
0: As we've discussed already, you forcefully critique the notion that, that identity politics caused the downfall of the left. But But you also, in an article written with Megan Ming Francis, write that, quote, Our concern is that the economic aspect of civil rights has been neglected and more often forgotten altogether as a result of the hegemonic focus on ending overt forms of racial discrimination. Is there a problem then, if not with identity politics per se, then with the instrumentalization of the politics of recognition, what we might call a neoliberalized identity politics?
1: I would phrase it differently. This might just be an old Marxist <laughs> way of thinking about old things. Old Marxist I ways of thinking
0: the, about things are very welcome on this podcast.
1: <laughs> I would say the problem is the class politics of the leadership of the black community right now. So um, I would agree that what, we're, I mean, what this article is about that you quote from is uh, centers on trying to understand the, liberal, the neoliberal influence within black politics which does concentrate on a type of certainly celebration of black identities and places of power. Um, The fact that we have a black president is good in and of itself is perhaps a type of identity politics, but it's also a type of class politics. Because what that type of identity politics is masking is the real lives of the great majority of black people who are not bidding finning from neoliberal excesses, from an expansion of, which I'm part of, of the black upper middle class, forgetting about the day-to-day struggles of people where labor force participation rates have st- still continue to be devastated, the type of devastation that occurred in black communities across the U.S., particularly in the West and South in some, in some, some senses, due to the subprime lending crisis and the recessions of 2008 to 2009, is we We've been writing about black and brown communities never did recover from that uh recession, and was more it took the level of depression than a level of recession in those communities so um the, the problem has historically been in black and other organizations, whether political or civic or social cultural, is that unless there is a strong progressive forces within those communities that is organized to hold these leaders into account, the politics we're going to see are going to be those of the middle class the petty bourgeoisie. Um, and sometimes um, the black bourgeoisie. And that's that's the problem with the majority of black politics today. That was a problem with the type of politics that my family was engaged in in the middle part of the 20th century. That's the type of politics you're going to get unless you have a radical black movement.
0: You write that this history, or this the current state of things, is, is rooted in a long history. First, in strategic decisions made in the early 20th century civil rights movement, through which, quote, the goal of economic justice was submerged and civil rights were redefined along the more narrow lines of formal political and legal equality. The result was was black politics taking place before and after in in two very different political economic contexts. You have Jim Crow, which was overt and concrete and impacted black people in a more cross class manner. And then by contrast, Carceral neoliberalism is diffuse, extremely focused on Black poor people expelled from the labor market, and justified through a colorblind ideology that itself is specifically contrasted against the Jim Crow model. Explain this this shift from, from Jim Crow to carceral neoliberalism, how Black movements approached it, and how the way that shook out ended up shaping the politics of of the 90s through today.
1: So I think we should, maybe a, place, a good place to start is the spring of 1968 and Dr. King organizing the poor people's movement. A lot of the histories cover the fact that a lot of the of the anger that was directed at Dr. King was due to his emphasis on uh, of protesting the Vietnam War, criticizing the Vietnam War, criticizing uh, American imperialism. What is less focused on is that a lot of the criticism he was facing within the SCLC and within the civil rights movement was taking up the issue of black garbage workers in Memphis, threatening to shut down Washington, D.C. for as long as it took until we got the type of redistributive programs that would bring something that looked like social democracy to the U.S. for the first time that would benefit poor people in general, including black people, quite a bit. And with Dr. King's death, I think it could be said quite comfortably or confidently that the economically progressive wing of the civil rights movement would lose whatever clout it had. And within the black power movement, particularly among the revolutionary nationalists and the black left, there was certainly an increasing focus on issues of, as I mentioned before, trying to fight the type of super-exploitation of black workers, the type of way that capital was um, devastating black communities, both rural and urban, and an increasing understanding of the dangers of the carceral state that was emerging at the time. But with the defeat of the black left and the earlier... I would say, defeat of the social democratic, uh, economically redistributive wing of the civil rights movement. At that point, by, let's say, the Reagan years, we really don't have an organized presence within black politics that's paying attention to what's happening in the poorest black communities whether it's in the workplace, whether it's the extraordinary drop in labor force participation, um, whether it's the type of precarity that black women are facing when they're trying to work two or three jobs at once to support a family, those type of issues are no longer being dealt with on a systematic basis by organized forces in black communities, whether it's social democratic or more radical.
0: And you write that part of the the problem was that the left across the board, including the black left, failed to understand what post-Fortist economic restructuring meant for the racialized politics of class. Explain your argument.
1: The left had had a model of organizing at the point of production, whether it's Detroit Revolutionary Union movement or Fred Hampton. I'm talking about within the black left, but um, whether within the Communist Party more generally or uh, the uh, new communist movement, you organize at the point of production. That was supposed to be the central strategy for organizing um, a successful, transformative political movement. The party production was moving to Malaysia, it was moving to the border with Mexico, it was moving to Taiwan, it was moving to Shanghai. Uh, It was not in Detroit, it was not in Chicago, it was no longer in the hills of northern Alabama, which is where a lot of capitalists moved after they got, they uh, were fleeing the organizing of black and brown workers in the cities, it left the United States. More generally, what we have not been paying attention to is the financialization of the economy, as many economic sociologists and economic historians, both in the United States and Europe, have been describing over the last 10 years. What we underst- had not been understanding is what are the forms of economic predation that have been racialized that are a result of financial capitalism, the move to a service economy away from a manufacturing-based economy. Some of that we're seeing in, in, in um, work of people like Cheryl Harris at UCLA Law School and FM there, for example, about how both states and entrepreneurs and corporations are using debt as a way to to prey on Black and Brown communities. We've all there's people are increasingly thinking about that in terms of obviously the subprime crisis of the last decade, but people are also, um, some historians are also talking about how the state have enabled white entrepreneurs to use tax laws to seize black and brown properties, um, sometimes by quite fraudulent means. Um, One of my colleagues and uh, and co-authors is also writing about how credit worthiness and risk has been racialized over the last several decades and how, again, that's led to a change in the forms of racial predation that are occurring in black and brown communities, how the logics of financial capitalism themselves operate um, to devastate these communities. Those are the type of, sort of basic empirical and theoretical analysis of 21st century financial capitalism and its articulation with white supremacy that we need to do, and that we were not paying sufficient attention to in the late 20th century as we were trying to fight the onslaught of the carceral state of neoliberalism and what emerged as a highly financialized uh, capitalist social order.
0: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. Hey, this is your host, Daniel Denver, on my cell phone. I recorded the introduction to this interview last week while I was in Providence. Right now I'm in New York interviewing Sylvia Federici and Lisa Dugan, and I forgot to mention in my intro that Michael Dawson is the host of New Dawn, one of my favorite podcasts. New Dawn is about race and capitalism, and Dawson's interviews are really superb. New Dawn. Look it up wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great podcast on racial capitalism, and I really encourage you to check it out. Stepping back for a moment to take a a broader view of that, you and Francis argue that to understand the turn in Black politics, we must, quote, also attend to the racialized political economy of distinct eras, this is a a big question. But how did these three core phases of political economy—slavery, Jim Crow, and neoliberalism—shape Black life and politics?
1: One of the things that uh, Megan and I tried to look at was the evolving relationship across time between civil society, the economy, and the state, with respect to Black subordination and, and the consequences for Black life and black politics. As Walter Johnson, a historian at Harvard, among others, have pointed out, that under slavery by 1859, African Americans were commodities and a commodity of such magnitude that in that year, the value of African Americans was greater than that of all the land, stock, and businesses combined. African Americans were extraordinarily central not just to the plantation South but to the building of financial institutions in Wall Street, in London, in Belgium. It was, re- it was essential to the growth of the, re- the big retail firms in Boston and New York. In other words, both the basic retail, industrial, and financial institutions of the two what become the two largest economies in the world in the 20th century, that of the United Kingdom and the United States, were based on the slave trade and slavery, and even outside of the South, so-called free blacks' um, lives were dictated by that reality. They could, they were free blacks outside the South were vulnerable to be taken, at, and becoming and becoming enslaved, um, and their rights were restricted. And as Frederick Douglass and others have written. Um, white workers were very keen on um, ensuring that neither slave labor nor free black labor would be would be in competition with them whether it was on the docks in places like Baltimore or elsewhere during Jim Crow obviously the relationship to the economy shifted. African Americans in the south and at this time blacks are still a predominantly rural well the first segment of Jim Crow Jim Crow is probably too big of an error although that's the way we often periodize it but during the first part of Jim Crow, let's say up to um, World War I, African Americans were overwhelming rural, tied to a shareholding economy where African Americans were both economically expropriated, not exploited, but expropriated um, in multiple ways, and that this, the economic expropri- expropriation and exploitation of black labor was reinforced by the extreme violence of both the state and civil society through lynching, um, both legal and otherwise. Um, in the second part, of, or as Jim Crow emerged and African-Americans and the Great Migration, which we already talked about, uh, took place, what we see in factories is a, the merging. And this also happened in Mario Barrera in a great book called Race and Class in the Southwest uh, documents. What we see is um, the emergence of what Barrera calls colonial um, labor markets. And what he means by that, those are racially segregated, um, segmented. Um, often black and brown workers serving as the Army Reserve Army of the Unemployed as a marginal and buffer workforce um, that's paid less for the same work, that's often doing the most dangerous work, the the least prestigious prestigious work. Um, And we see, again, both within the state itself, the enforcement of these economic um, regimes of of rule, but also um, strict racialized codes of law as well. Um, that not only serve an economic pur- purpose, but to reinforce the subordinate status of black and brown people within the United States. Again, very much backed up by the violence found within uh, white civil society, whether it's attacking black people in Chicago who are in the wrong beach or trying to corrupt the United States, ensure that black people don't move into white neighborhoods, but otherwise very strictly um, and violently enforcing a racial hierarchy in all phases of American life. What we've seen as a result of the civil rights and black power movements and allied movements uh, among Latinx, um, Asian, and indigenous populations is at least a somewhat formal um, ending of racialized codes of conduct, but a reproduction of racial hierarchies both through boundaries set up in civil society, through neoliberal codes that systematically privilege white populations, um, through um, the legacy of lack of access to capital, property, and economic advancement, being reinforcing racial and economic hierarchies in this period, and through the emitting of small numbers of non-white populations into both the bourgeoisie and the the upper managerial and technical and educational and cultural upper middle classes, with the price of the ticket generally being an embracing of neoliberal norms and policies, and sometimes either acquiescence to or active participation in the policing of poor um, communities of color.
0: Under slavery and Jim Crow, you write, black labor was at the core of the system. During neoliberalism, by contrast, a massive portion of the black working class was declassed and pushed into the lumpen proletariat, becoming expendable and disposable populations who could be managed through mass incarceration and the carceral state. And at the same time, the, the neoliberal turn also included this massive attack on manufacturing in the public sector to major centers of black labor. How did this shift in political economy in general and with regard to black people in particular, how did this shift transform political economy in general and with regard to black people in particular? And what were the consequences of so many black people being pushed out of the labor market entirely?
1: One of the surprising findings when I was very early in my career was doing some work on black some of my initial work on black political economy, I found that by the nineteen fifties, blacks were one of the most, if and perhaps the most, unionized sector of the of the American workforce, and this was accompanied by the fact that blacks were also and and uh, Latinx populations some of the most militant um, segments of of the of the workforce as well, um, as we see both in some of the public employee unionizing that was done in the seventies and eighties and later and through today, we can see it in teachers' unions, for example, but also in some of the private sector um, unionizing as well. One of my colleagues at the University of Michigan was a quantitative demographer, and he was curious about why all the Japanese, all the plants were moving so far away from black populations. He did a quantitative analysis and showed that that statistically Japanese were siting their auto plants in urban areas as far away from black communities as they could. And so he, being a relatively more audacious professor than I am, he asked top in managers for Japanese auto firms why were they placing um, their plant new plants so far away from black communities. And what he told them was, That they were told that by the big three that you don't want if you want to avoid if you want to have labor peace don't be anywhere near a black community. So part of the transformation of the political economy was in response to the fact that militant and black and brown workers both in the private and public sectors were organizing. One of the reasons we see the conservative movement really attack public sector unions was because of the union. Militancy of public sector workers in places like New York, where there was Puerto Rican and black workers, or b- black and brown workers in Los Angeles in health industry, in the food industry, et cetera. So one of the shifts we see is first a move of manufacturing out of unionized sectors of the United States to like northern Alabama and to other areas where there had not been a history of either unionization or, for that matter, industrial manufacturing, and then eventually outside of the United States altogether. The shift for the the black communities were extraordinarily devastating. You can see it in Chicago. You can see it in Detroit. You can see it in St. Louis. Um, The blacks...
0: Work disappeared.
1: Work disappeared, and so predominantly black suburbs in places like Chicago, where the workers had worked in in predominantly steel and auto mills and had a pretty good life... uh, those communities became totally devastated, became extremely poor overnight. We see unemployment rates, of, which are high by American standards, of 10% in black communities, and some communities so, soared to 80%, uh, where labor force participation in some inner city communities dropped to below 10%, um, as Sue here Vinkatech um, documented in his, some of his early work um, in the projects in Chicago. So what we see is particularly this affected black, and this was also accompanied under the Nixon and Reagan administrations, but also conservative Democrats like Carter and as well, with a reduction in the size of the state. So the manufacturing of public sectors, which had been the engine of black economic advancement, were the sectors that were most under attack and the ones that uh, most shrunk, um, the ones where whose unions were most attacked both legally and by, um, and by other means. So, work disappears the way you manage particularly these populations is through incarceration and what we see among black women is and this is something that um Adam Gerche has pointed out is that it's not that women of color disappear from the workforce in some way that some that black men do, but their work becomes much more precarious where you um where When you work, how long you work is not known in advance. The the work is so poorly paid, you work two or three jobs. Both of these types of phenomena have, whether your work disappears or or becomes unbearably precarious, has enormous um, um, import for the ability to organize, for the ability to build movements if people's lives are this precarious um, and this desperate.
0: You write that Obama's campaign, quote, more than anything, was a spectacle, a cynical manipulation of what potentially was a moment of transformative politics. What was the hope that Obama mobilized? And how did the contours of the neoliberal political economy that you've been explaining both make the so-called post-racial era possible while simultaneously obscuring its political economic context? So
1: there's two aspects to this. The public opinion work that I've done and my colleagues have done across the country show very clearly that there was an extraordinary surge of hope and political hope among African Americans um, in the periods of 2007-2008 after reaching an extraordinary level of desperation in 2005 that had been building for 20 years and reached its climax with um, the human-made disaster aftermath of Katrina. What the hope was was that maybe African-Americans could, in fact, one day become equal. Because the majority of African-Americans thought, a uh, great majority of African-Americans believed, according to all our, our our survey work, that blacks would not become equal within their own lifetimes and perhaps never at all within the United States. That's how, and 80% of African-Americans believed that. That falls to just below 50% right after the election in 2008, but rapidly becomes very, blacks become disenchanted once again. So the spectacle of hope for a future in the United States is what Obama is able to mobilize. But one of the reasons I got very ugly phone calls from my relatives, and I'm throwing all sorts of shade in multiple directions, (laughs) for coming out against uh, um, the Obama candidacy was that those of us who actually lived in Chicago knew that he had made his career by running against the black left, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and that he had always pushed neoliberal policies that were not in the interest of black poor people. One of my former students worked for him and said that their electoral strategy was to ignore black poor people and to unite the black and white middle class, black and white unite, but along different class terms that I think the CPSUA invented. invention. I don't think those of us from who were politically paying attention in Chicago were surprised by the neoliberal turn that the Obama administration took. But what it did allow, and this is where I talked about the spectacle aspect, was a masking of the true re-inscribing, the, the bailout of the banks, not of homeowners, the lack of attention paid to devastated communities, the increasing levels of deportations that were incurring under the Obama regime. So the types of politics, and this was also true of the Clinton administration as well, the type of feel-good racially inclusive spectacle that's put on very much hid a politics of intense neoliberal clampdown on poor communities and particularly poor communities of color that may life more precarious for many populations whether immigrants coming from south of the us border to uh, communities that have been cut off from labor markets and these are overwhelmingly but not exclusively communities of color because working class white communities as we know now were also beginning to suffer massive downturns in their ability to have a decent life
0: you cite a number of instances when obama very clearly echoed Daniel Patrick Moynihan's notion of black pathology. Obama said once, quote, there's no more important ingredient for success, nothing that would be more important for us reducing violence than strong, stable families, which means we should do more to promote marriage and encourage fatherhood. and Francis note that, quote, the recasting of, was simultaneously accompanied by the elevation of a substantial sector of black elites. What is the political economic context to this transformation of of black leadership that's key to forming this neoliberal post-racial ideology that it's something new and that you say is a sharp break with black tradition, but also that has deep roots, a quote, modern recasting of Booker T. Washington's famed racial uplift ideology, that blacks can do anything if they work hard enough.
1: An argument I have with some progressive historians, and I'm, there's no, not being least facetious, these are colleagues that we have, we just disagree. Um, and we'll, hopefully we'll figure it out um, together. It's about how n- new is. How, to what degree is the neo and neoliberalism justified? Um, and with respect to black politics, I think it is justified. Certainly, there has been elements of conservative ideology in black politics, and we did cite obviously uh, Booker T. Washington and the modern recasting, whether it's by Jay Z or or former President Obama. But what is new is a couple things. One is that the belief that politics should be severely circumscribed um, and limited to, at most, electoral politics is very new for in terms of being embraced by such a wide variety of black elites. Black elites, um, at least through the latter part of the 20th century, still believed in multiple forms of politics, including mass politics, even if the mass politics are directed at ends that might best serve the, the needs of the black middle class and not to the same degree, the needs of of black poor people, to the degree to which black elites also adopted culturalist understandings of of poverty, black and otherwise. I think it's also the the degree to which it has happened is is new for African Americans. African Americans have generally embraced a combination of structural explanations with those being dominant to um, explanations that are now... Um, the culture in these communities are the problems that they face, and with a attack on black radicalism as being, and we saw this in the March 2008 speech on race that oh, that Obama did, where you know with or with attack on Reverend Wright, but really attack on black radicalism as being inappropriate, and not only unnecessary but inappropriate for black politics at this time. That those have become dominant. I think are the hallmarks of of neoliberalism in black politics, and it's not just in black politics. Um, black studies departments at one time were bastions of black radicalism. Today, they're providing a lot of the academic infrastructure for the type of beliefs, neoliberal beliefs, I just described. So we're seeing these types of um, neoliberal beliefs in black elites in culture, and popular culture. We're seeing it in formal culture, so um, f- among someone like Winton Marcellus being an example, um, JC in popular culture. We see it in the academy, as I just described, including in black studies departments, which are, by and large, not, there are exceptions, no longer bastions of radicalism. And we see it, of course, um, in black politics, which is probably the least surprising place to see it.
0: One thing that comes to, to mind in terms of black studies is just the sort of... Vitriolic response that Cornel West was met with when he made very straightforward criticisms of Obama, very much in line with with a traditional black left critique.
1: I don't think it's surprising, given the neoliberal turn in the academy, academy among African American faculty, that people did not come to West defense or at least have an open debate. That by the by and large, the the Major response was to attack um, Cornel West.
0: You and Francis cite Jay-Z as rapping, quote, I got a problem with the handouts. I took the man route. And you write that Jay-Z tellingly conflates his early years selling crack with his current corporate lifestyle brand, wrapping them all up into a form of nihilistic neoliberal triumphalism. And you write that Jay-Z and Obama are both... Avatars of a similar sort of politics. Quote For black neoliberals, legitimacy is grounded in an individualism where hedonistic, consumerist, capitalist actions and achievements are often celebrated as advancements in the crusade for black progress and an actual vindication of the sacrifices and struggles of the past. How does consumption in particular work? to legitimate both the current Black elite and the broader neoliberal politics that they are part of.
1: We could actually move that into the contemporary period with respect to J.C., not that we were writing about something that happened 20 years ago <laughs> when we wrote the article on Black neoliberal politics, but several people have accused J.C. of throwing Conic Kaepernick and people like Eric Reed under the bus by when he inked the deal between Rock Nation and the and the National Football League, and I think the point is quite the same. Where he said, "You know, we have to move beyond kneeling," is we have to move the the consistent message we get from Black neoliberals is that we have to move beyond protest, and p- the implicit part of that we have to move beyond protest is that the structural problems that face poor Black and Brown. Communities are no longer either structural and or and can be surmounted by individual effort. And the way that we can see that is and demonstrate that is by the ability of those of us can have quite extraordinarily comfortable and affluent lifestyles. And that in fact one of the ways we know our success is by what we consume. One of the things that we Emphasized in the article to some degree is that there's different versions of black neoliberalism. One is more consumptionist um, oriented. Certainly, I think in black popular culture, the the consumption aspect has been over, has been a central um, aspect for quite some time now. But it's not just black neoliberalism we're talking about. We're talking about American life has been very much oriented around. Conspicuous dis- uh, displays of cons- uh, consumption as a mark of, of success. Our current president is one of the best examples of that.
0: All made possible by debt.
1: All made possible by debts and by discriminating against black and brown renters and by other types of patriarchal white supremacist and capitalist behaviors, some of which would be criminal in any other context.
0: In terms of uh, the role consumption that consumption plays, the, the article that you wrote with Francis also, to me, suggested a more radical critique of of cultural appropriation, which is you know often the sort of thing that sparks a lot of controversy on the internet. The idea that I picked up reading your piece is that it's not so much the just offensiveness of, of cultural appropriation that's the problem, but really the way that certain things are being depoliticized and laundered into a brand, or you you have another Jay-Z quote in your epigraph, my presence is charity, just who I am, just like Obama's is. Obama provides hope. Whether he does anything, the hope he provides for a nation and outside of America is enough. How do you see cultural appropriation, which which is so often, I think, in internet flame wars defined as just someone who, who doesn't have a group-based right to use a certain symbols and and language offensively doing so, how do you see that relating to a a broader commodification of Black culture and depoliticization of it?
1: I'm less worried about cultural appropriation, except when it's done in such a way as to deny opportunities to people from uh, given communities. Uh, I'm thinking about some of the, for example, anime-based movies, which, you wouldn't, under, wouldn't realize came from Asian culture if you, if you didn't know the know the source material. I am much more worried about the commodification in general about the commodification and depoliticization. Whether it's the commodification of Malcolm X, the lack of understanding of what his message was, or Dr. King, or any one of a number of others, uh, where they become symbols for American capitalism as opposed to some of the most bitter critics of American capitalism. I think the trend toward one of the aspects of emphasizing consumer progress or the the focus that we see in some hip hop, for example, but in any type of media with conspicuous displays of consumption is the equating of consumption with success when a central part of the black political tradition, not just the black record tradition, was equating success with communities moving forward and having the ability to have better lives, both politically, economically, and socially. And that has been lost in a good part of the messaging we have seen coming out of popular culture, coming out of politics, um, coming out of American society more generally. And that's, Part of the problem we see with the type of emphasis on, as J.C. would put it, popping tax, as opposed to progress being measured not by what you can get from Versace or from, from Barney's, but what you can actually get in terms of people having better lives, the ability to feed their families, the ability to be included in making the type of decisions that affect their lives uh, and the lives of their children.
0: One really powerful line in this piece along those lines is when Jay-Z explicitly knocks common um and says, Well, I would like to rap like common sense, but I've made money instead.
1: Right. And I think I mean that's Jay-Z's attack on, on common or implicit attack on common is not anything new in black communities, uh in black in black culture. There's a lot of arguments among jazz musicians in the late 50s and early 60s, and late 60s for that matter, um, in terms of being true to um, the art or in terms of trying to make money. The question is not that we should necessarily condemn an artist who decides that, um, to take a more commercial bent, but what I, what I think where we're strongly criticizing some artists um, and other types of elites and leaders is by equating that decision with progress for Black people as a whole, as opposed to individual success.
0: Post-racialism, as we've discussed, is is facilitated by the contours of the of the present political economic order, or at least you—that's what you were arguing about a decade ago. Since then, we've seen the rise of Black Lives Matter, a militant anti-borders immigrant rights movement. And a newly powerful socialist left on the one hand, and on the other, the Trump presidency and an explosion of white power violence. So it seems to me that this period that, that you were describing a few years ago, this post-racial order, has entered into a crisis of sorts. What do you make of how these politics have changed since you wrote the texts that we've been discussing? And, and what does that say about, about changes in the political economy?
1: What I've been writing for the past couple of years, that, that's related to your question, is that it's become increasingly difficult for the capitalist social order and the racial state to be able to convince people that their lives are getting better, particularly white working people and broad sections of a the, of the white middle class, and B, that they can maintain their racial and gender privileges as well. And this has produced a type of crisis within white communities about lack of confidence in the future. And this lack of confidence in the future could go one of a couple of different ways. One way that it can play out is, um, and Nick Estes, who has written on indigenous social movements in in the current period, and also historically as well. And a
0: recent guest on this show.
1: Is that, in places like North Dakota and um, the Midwest, we see indigenous forces um, with allies such as representatives from the Movement for Black Lives, but also with um, some members of the white working class and unions coming together to fight environmental depredation. So one way you can play out is that People who have seen their interests at odds in the over the past century or so, if not longer, are beginning to see that maybe they have some common interests that, and this could be a great force in progressive movements so we 're seeing not just the movements coming out of the communities that historically have been at the vanguard of fighting both economic and racial injustice but also begin to to uh, spread more widely, but the very dangerous other aspect which we see in the movement to make America great again in the Trump presidency we see in Hungary, we see in France, we see in Sweden, we see um, in the United Kingdom with Brexit, is the ability to to convince some of the same forces that have been historically privileged who are now facing an uncertain future that their best option is authoritarian racial rule. Um, and that is where we see the explosion of white violence. We see the support for uh, President Trump and Brexit and other right-wing movements in Europe. We're at a period that will be quite volatile um, in the foreseeable future as the left and the right try to convince whites segments of populations in multiple places, including places like Brazil, for example, that the way forward is either an authoritarian right that has a strong racial and racist um, aspect to it, or a more popular and progressive movement that can unite across various movements.
0: And that's a conflict that is also very much in Brazil and the U.S. and elsewhere developed around the, the issue of fossil fuel extraction.
1: And it's, it's, it's developing around fossil fuel extraction. It's going. To, we're going to see it around water um, as massive segments of the population of this planet have increasingly less access to, uh, to water. Um, we're going to see it in how people think about trying to deal with the increasingly violent depredations that are coming as a result of massive storms, whether it's hurricanes or other types of natural, uh, wildfires, other types of natural uh, dis- uh, disasters that are the result of human and particularly corporate and, as you said, extractive industries and fossil fuel industries uh, machinations.
0: Notably, the resurgent overt racism in the U.S. has been most powerfully manifest in explicit form as anti-Mexican, anti-Central American, in anti-Muslim racism rather than anti-Black racism, which, of course, is still obviously very much present and is a basic structuring feature of this country, but is still taboo in a way to state as directly. W- why do you think that is? How do these various racisms function together?
1: Some of the early work uh, by a political scientist named Claire King was trying to make the argument, I think, quite reasonably that the racial order has multiple dimensions, and one of those dimensions is is the dimension of otherness and alienness and it's hard to argue that blacks have not been part of this country, not say inclusion or citizens, but been a part of this country since sixteen nineteen as a newspaper recently uh, uh, discovered okay won't be too facetious <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but so that makes the easy target of being un american um those who are the religious other are those who are seen both ahistorically and quite wrongly as being the other um as you know foreign immigrants um uh, and not immigrants from places as the president pointed out such as Norway or Europe as one of his advisors recently pointed out, but those who are also the racialized other. Um, and that f- and both Muslims and um migrants from Central and South America, and from Mexico also fall into, into that into that category. But what I wouldn't underestimate, and Charlottesville is just various massacres, and Charlottesville, I think, reminds us, and what the president is reminding us is that those attacks are opening the way for attacks on groups that have been seen as part of the American Landscape, if not the American polity, including African Americans and Jewish Americans. So the initial attacks are laying the groundwork for attacks on a broader range of people who are considered outside the American, uh, the American circle, as defined by those such as the Make America Great Again movement.
0: Something that I've been thinking through is that somehow the just overt racism that Trump, for example, expresses towards Mexicans, calling Mexican migrants rapists, and the things that he says about Islam are in some way a proxy, not exclusively, but in some way a proxy for a very foundational anti-Black racism that can't be stated in the same way.
1: I think that's partly the case, and particularly the case when we think about the attacks on, on Muslims in the United States, because the largest groups of domestic Muslims, um, of non-immigrant Muslim communities, are Black Americans, um, and we see that in Congress. We've seen, um, we, you know, we've seen that um, in various attacks on representatives of Black Americans who have, who are of the Muslim faith, um, who are political leaders. So. Attacking uh, Muslims is um, a not so indirect way of also attacking African-Americans as you've been here a long time and you've never adapted to the norms of this society.
0: I want to end by returning to this extraordinary distance that has emerged between now and the rather recent moment you were writing a lot of this work we've been discussing. You wrote, quote, we are too scared to hope to think big. We are too traumatized by failures of movements, historical epics, generations, society, and government. The trauma of our own failures prevents us from replacing the waking nightmares of life in this era with dreams of a better future. We are too traumatized to imagine a truly good society. Again, you wrote these words around 2009, I think, and they were spot on. Ten years later, though, things seem very different where do you both hope and worry things might go from here
1: what i hope is that i think as we've seen and as you alluded to several times is that the people who are building the movements for uh, black lives um byp 100 people who are building the asada sisters and all the other groups across the country the immigrant rights movements um a lot of these are being led by people who aren't thirty. They haven't failed in the same way some of us old folks have. Uh, so um, they haven't been traumatized by failure. I think the other p- part of that is that things have gotten so worse that people are saying we have no choice but to stand up. Um, and that has often been the case when movements have gone off the ground. Is that we we can we can accept these conditions any longer. My fear is that um, I do believe that is a positive. Development. The fear is that in this country and in other countries, whether it's Brazil, the UK, or some of the others I have mentioned, um, there are groups of previously privileged people who are somewhat privileged, not totally privileged, but somewhat privileged people who see their lives and their futures as being in disarray and they might turn to the authoritarian impulse as they did in Weimar Germany in the 1920s, as they have turned toward fascism in the 20th century and in many places seem Whether it's Italy um, with the class of the government or Brazil in its most recent elections turning toward authoritarian right as the supposed, if not bringing back a better economic, like bringing order back to society. That's the fear.
0: Well, Michael Dawson, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Michael C. Dawson is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and founding director of the university's Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. He is the author of numerous books, including Not in Our Lifetimes, The Future of Black Politics, and Blacks in and Out of the Left. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways... Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever... Please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us, and do find us at Patreon.com/slash/TheDig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.